Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather. My name is Doug McNeil. I'm a climate scientist here at the Met Office. And with me today are two broadcast meteorologists, Penny Tranter. Hello there. And Claire Nazir. Hello. And Claire also produces the podcast, so a very special welcome to Claire today. Today we'll be discussing the tragic Fastnet race. It's an ocean race, a yacht race, and it's the 40th anniversary of the race this August. So Penny, could you explain what the race is about? Yes, um, well, it's a famous offshore yacht biennial race and it's run by Rourke, which is the Royal Ocean Racing Club and it's named after the Fastnet Rock, which the race course rounds off Southern Ireland. So it starts in the Solent off Cowes in the Isle of Wight, goes westwards, goes past Land's End, goes out across the Celtic Sea, rounds the Fastnet Rock, then comes back through the Isles of Scilly and into Plymouth. And it's uh, 605 miles long, but it's seen as one of those really, you know, fantastic races that any offshore yachtsman wants to do because it really tests your skill for both coastal and offshore racing. So you really got to be the bee's knees when it comes to sailing and racing. We're we're looking at some expert sailors uh, and some some pretty experienced sailors. And and it sounds like some of the fastest racing yachts in the world doing this race every, every two years. Yeah, absolutely. That is the case now. But in 1979, it wasn't quite the case. Right. OK, so it's become more famous as, as time has gone on and it's yeah. become more serious with serious competitors. OK, so maybe amateur sailors, you know, lots of amateur sailors during the late 70s. Yes, there were lots of amateur sailors. You know, in fact, there were some sailors that really hadn't done an awful lot of offshore racing at that time. But now, post that 1979 race, it's really been upped in terms of standards and qualifications that all the sailors have to meet. Okay, and a a long history of uh, the Fastnet race. Yes, so it started in um, 1925 and since then it's kind of grown and uh, a couple of years ago in um, 2015 there's 340 boats that could register for the race and the registration limit was reached in four minutes and 24 seconds, right, okay, setting so a new record. People so that really like tells to do this. You, yeah. you really, really want to do this. This is a prestigious racing event. So in 1979, this is one of the greatest and the largest civil rescue operations since World War II. Um, tragically, 19 people died, 15 of the sailors and four spectators. We know that of over 300 racing vessels, only 86 finished the race, so a really small proportion. 75 boats capsized, 24 were abandoned and five were lost completely and sunk. So this is a huge tragedy. Um, so, um, so my dad uh, is an amateur sailor and I remember reading about this in his yachting magazines. But this is clearly a famous disaster that's led to many improvements in weather forecasting and in yacht safety. So we're here to talk about that today. So Claire, I understand that earlier in this month, you spoke to a a couple of the survivors, a couple of the sailors that were there during 1979. Yes, I did. I spoke to Frank Worley, who was on the vessel uh, Camargue, who's actually Penny's uncle. We'll find out more about him a little bit later. And Rick Newham, who was a bowman on the Marionette 7. And both of these guys are now a lot older. They're 40 years older. Um, But they could really wax lyrical about what happened during the time between the 11th and the 14th of August 1979. Obviously, they both have an amazing passion about sailing. They really do. And there were some interesting things that came out of the conversation. In particular, not only the detail they had on every moment of that trip. Obviously, it would stay in your mind, a race like that where you were fighting for survival at the end. 
But the, the lack of fear in some respects, and I was talking to Penny about this earlier, and she said, yeah, it's a bit like childbirth. <laughs> because I, absolutely, if you're facing death on uh, with 40 feet waves, what's you? what are you thinking about? You're going to be thinking about, am I going to survive this or not? But their perspective and their slant is, is a lot different, and we'll be hearing from them. We've got recordings of both of those interviews, and we're going to be dipping in and out of Uncle Frank and Rick Newham's narrative and what happened during that time. And Penny, I understand that not only was your uncle involved and you went to the memorial service recently, but also you were there at the time. Can you tell me about that? I wasn't actually there. I was actually up in the air. At height. At height, coming back from America. I just spent six weeks with my um, aunt and my cousins in California, post-A-levels. That shows you how old I am. (laughs) And... um, As we hit that jet stream, which was obviously driving this storm from west to east, we landed in Heathrow 45 minutes early. Okay. Which is phenomenal. Yeah. When, you know, anybody that knows anything about flights, if you arrive 45 minutes early, then it's... That's very unusual. So really unusual weather conditions. Yeah, absolutely. But coming back to that memorial service that I attended back at the beginning of August this year, I have to say that it was a really sort of serene service. You know, everybody came together from the sailing fraternity. So you had sailors from all over the world there, not just the UK, but past and present sailors who'd obviously done the fastnet over many decades. But also lots of local dignitaries and people from partner agencies that had been involved in the rescue. So you're talking about the Royal Navy, you're talking about Coast Guard. I understand there were 4,000 people involved, that's the number I saw, uh, involved in this rescue. Yeah, so it was, it was the, as you said earlier, it was the biggest civil rescue since World War Two. You know, we had naval vessels from the United States, from Holland and from Ireland, as well as the Royal Navy. So it just shows you how big that rescue effort was. But it, it really was quite a serene service. And it was a very hot, humid, beautiful summer evening because it was an evening service. You know, we heard um, lots of readings and we heard sang lots of hymns about the sea, which was obviously very appropriate. So I think the most poignant part of that church service at Holy Trinity Church in Cowes, which is just above the Royal Yacht Squadron, who start off the race in the Solent, was, if you like, the little informal blessing around the memorial stone which has the inscriptions of the 19 people that sadly died during the fastnet race and there was just sort of this hush as the vicar spoke and gave the blessing and we all had an opportunity to look out across the Solent where the race had started and also I learned later that the stone had actually come from the fastnet rock so it kind of all tied it in together and and made it very special indeed. God that's really quite something isn't it really Mm. is I can imagine it was a special atmosphere yes yes it was even though it's 40 years ago it felt very real like yesterday yeah that's right and and that's where I met Rick one of our contributors well let's introduce our two virtual contributors the two sailors that were there during the Fastnet race in 1979 they were Rick Newham and Frank Worley my name is Frank Worley and uh, I was sailing in the yacht Camargue we knew that sometime in the next five days there was going to be some strong winds to the west of the British Isles. And we all had sufficient experience to know that uh, we've experienced heavy weather in boats before and it didn't appear to be beyond our capabilities. 
Our story is about a boat called Marionette, which was a full-on racing machine. We had a crew of nine. We'd sailed at a fairly international level, and we'd sailed together for many years, and thought, well, this is just another fastnet race. It's easy. Little did we know. So let's go back to Saturday, the 11th of August, 1979, when the race kicked off, and to think about the meteorological situation and what information was available both to the forecasters, but also to the people on the yachts who were racing. What was the meteorological situation at the time, Penny? So the meteorological situation at the time was that we did have quite a changeable weather pattern. It was coming in off the Atlantic, so it was coming in from west to east across the UK. So there was nothing unusual about that. You know, it was a sort of typical summer setup. The forecast was for light winds to start off at the race. And so I think a lot of the, you know, really ultra competitive sailors were quite disappointed. They want a good force four, force five, really, to get going. But it was noted that there was an area of low pressure developing over the eastern seaboard of Canada. And that is always the best place to see areas of low pressure that can eventually turn into storms to actually form. So there was some recognition that there was a low over the eastern seaboard of Canada, but at the time, the weather models were not picking up how it was going to develop so explosively in the coming days. So there was an interesting sequence of events. I've been uh, reading this paper in the Meteorological Magazine in 1981, which is called The Fastnet Storm Forecasted Viewpoint by A. Woodruff at the Met Office, as it was in Bracknell then. And he writes that some of the early course grid model runs or model run, I'm not sure how it was done at the time, uh, indicated that there might be this sort of uh, deepening low pressure coming in from the west. But then... I was interested in how the observations and the forecast was actually constructed at that time, you know. So how was the forecast that went to the yachtsmen on the Saturday before they left? How would that have been constructed? How much was taken from the models and how much was taken from sort of uh, intuition or other sources? So I think, you know, coming back to what the forecaster was doing, we used to call it the man-machine mix. I mean, obviously we can't use the word man Yep. <laughs> Nowadays, can uh, we? So it, it's, maybe it was then. Yeah, but it, it was now then. It's it was then. I, yeah. You know, I started in the Met Office in 1983, and that phrase was used a lot. So now I think we'd call it forecaster machine mix. But certainly, you had all the information that was coming in from the land and the ships observations we didn't have so much radar and satellite information then so it was really at its infancy being able to derive forecasts from satellite and radar information the weather models are not as complex or as good as they are now Mm -hmm. so you've got all those issues and I think also looking at this area of low pressure as it came across the um, Atlantic it didn't engage with the jet stream as soon as it could do It kind of came into the mid-Atlantic, it sat there for a little while, and then suddenly it did engage with the jet stream, and then it developed explosively, and we had explosive cycle genesis. But coming back to the forecast, so what you did have was that you'd have the computer model, and as you say, the runs. The forecasters were obviously concerned because they kept changing the forecast, and I understand that they dropped the centre of that low pressure area between sort of 15 and 20 millibars, which is really unheard of. Okay, so they've, ma- they've manually yeah, adjusted they've manually what the adjusted it saying. down okay. because they were concerned about where that area of low pressure was, what the jet stream was doing above it, etc., etc. So they had all that experience yeah. 
to know that they needed to, to modify. So just to be clear, they've manually dropped the pressure at the centre of that low, which would indicate stronger winds and yes. a, a stronger storm. Yes, absolutely. So they were very happy to talk about, I understand they were issuing gale warnings quite regularly, mm-hmm. uh, sort of gale eight, gale nine, and, and then eventually they sort of you know went higher than that. But um, there is an issue in the for some reason, the model didn't pick up the development of it correctly, but of course we don't have that. So this was, uh, and this was the race, I guess the race started three, four days before mm. the events, the, the sort of peak of the storm. So you're quite a long way out there. And, yes. and I understand that our sort of forecast has got better through time. Yes, So has. at that time, that must have been quite a long forecast. Yes, it was. I mean, if you think now that we can do the same accuracy four days ahead now compared to one day ahead then. Okay. So that's that's how our accuracy has improved over that time. What we did have then was that obviously traditional media, as we know it now through television and radio, would be the big ways of communicating weather information. The shipping forecast was really important, but that was only a 24-hour head forecast. Yeah, this comes up in the report that in in some cases uh, it looks like there was always indications that there might be be something more serious happening just beyond the forecast that was being given so there was some understanding that there might be a really severe low but that was beyond the 72 hours that the forecast had been issued at the start of the race and then even later it felt like um, when the shipping forecast was going out maybe we'll come back to that in a minute but it was beyond the time scale of the shipping forecast that something serious was going to happen so everything looked quite normal until right near the explosive events if you like and at that point, it's difficult to get in contact even with the Well, with, that's right. With because, the races. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's, there's a couple of points here, really, isn't there? That first of all, that the um, shipping forecast was 24 hours ahead. It, the gale warnings were going out. But the gale warnings, you see how many gale warnings were issued in the run-up to that storm coming across the Celtic Sea. I mean, I can't remember how many it is, but it's a fair number. Mm-hmm. And each time, it's increasing. It's getting more it, serious. Yeah, yeah. But only only at the end, I guess. Uh, is yeah, it getting to the, the point where experienced races might be expected not to cope so early on they, they might get a blow but they're going to deal with this and that's just part of the yeah. normal yeah uh, and, world and, of racing. and rick being an international sailor he was quite happy to go gale force eight severe gale force nine possibly a 10 but to go above that you know is going to be really unusual for oh. any sailor to have experienced in fact they talked about the brief it's quite interesting what their concerns were and it was more for the fact that it was going to be light oh, and wins. easy with fog okay should we listen to frank Let's listen to Frank, that would be great. We knew that sometime in the next five days there was going to be some strong winds to the west of the British Isles, that uh, it was going to be fairly light on leaving the Solent, and we all had sufficient experience to know that we've experienced heavy weather in boats before, and it didn't appear to be beyond our capabilities. I think with Rick, you know, he really oozes confidence, like Frank, and he was just so excited. Fastnet is one of the sort of great blue water classics and uh, I've done many before and since and you're always excited by it but we were excited about the idea of competition not of survival. The weather brief that we had suggested it was going to start light and easy and later on Monday, Tuesday the wind was going to pick up but we weren't expecting anything dramatic. As we said earlier, these are experienced international yachtsmen and they want exciting weather because they want to go fast. They want to break the fast net race record, etc, etc. But what I will say is that there was one or two international yachtsmen who said, not happy with this. I'm retiring now. 
just didn't like what the barometer was doing, what how the wind was picking up, how it was changing direction, what they could see with the seas, with the clouds, etc. And just said not happy. So let's think about the information that was available on day one and the meteorological conditions during day one. And we've got in front of us forecast actually there were a few products what we call model products i guess model runs um, but we've got the medium range forecast the 72 hour forecast for midnight on the 14th of august 1979 and the medium range forecast for midday on the 14th of august 1979 both side by side these look quite different but not beyond the bounds of a normal August storm. Is that right, Penny? Yeah, absolutely. Because the first chart is showing that it's developing. And then by midday, you know, 12 hours later, it's substantially developed more. And that you're going to see some strong winds. And hence why they were talking about gale force 8 winds. So yeah, I mean, this is this is acceptable forecasting. But when we hear from Frank and Rick, actually all sort of unraveled earlier on than this. That's the interesting thing. So the forecast models were still a bit slower and not as deep as what actually happened. So it's the speed. By slower, you mean the speed of the lowers? The it track, across the, yeah, and, and the, how, the how deep it was, yes. And this is the interesting thing about this story, really. It's the senior forecasters, the forecasters back at base were like looking at all of these charts versus the model runs, which weren't really supporting what they felt was going to be a much more tricky synoptic situation. Oh, absolutely. And what they were relying on was ship observations. And of course, unfortunately, some of the ship observations that they usually relied on were missing. So, you know, they were having to go with, as you say, their experience when they were looking at these models, they were looking at the jet stream information as well, the actual information plus the forecast. Yeah, their their expertise, their experience and knowledge, their skills were saying there is something wrong with this. And I think the, the issue they have, particularly because they briefed Southampton, who briefed the crews back on the 11th, oh my goodness, this could go horribly wrong for vulnerable yachtsmen out there who haven't got this information and how do you relay this sort of information to people out in the open ocean so of course in in those days they didn't have gps global positioning systems they didn't have uh, particularly good radio contact they had long wave radio that's how they were picking up the shipping forecast and of course they were getting the gale warnings but A lot of the boats couldn't then contact land and say, this is what we're aiming to do or what should we do or anything like that. They couldn't get any additional information. So they just had to sort of brazen it out, if you like. It's interesting. I think going into the mind of the forecaster then, it's a huge responsibility because these are very early models. Okay, so the layers of the atmosphere broken down into 10 parts, Mm. whereas today's forecast, we have 72 layers just to the atmosphere alone. And then that's coupled with the ocean. So these were pretty basic models. And this is what the forecast was doing day in, day out at this point, actually challenging the, the output and going, we need to tweak this, we need to change this. And normally on a, on a day-to-day basis, that's okay because we're talking about maybe a couple of degrees of temperature if it's a, a hot day. But this was something very critical. And I, and I don't know how you have to have a very calm mind to go, I disagree with that and I'm going to go for this because there's something wrong here. So we've all been in situations where we've thought, uh, you know, this could turn out quite bad. You know, open road forecasting when you're forecasting ice at night do you grit or not well it costs a lot to grit but you know all it takes is one shower temperature drops below freezing and you could have an accident and that is you know how can you monetize a life lost 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Claire. And I remember 1987, I was working in Southampton Weather Centre and that was that was a huge storm. And we saw, oh gosh, I think nearly 20 people die across the land. And of course, there was huge implications for the Met Office and weather forecasting moving on from that. But that's another story. Well, we've heard about the, uh, the mind of the forecaster, but it would be interesting to hear what Frank and Rick were feeling at the time. Having turned Wolfrock, I was on watch, I think, from midnight-ish, and I must say, I was extremely ill. I really only became aware when about five o'clock in the morning, I suppose, having finished my watch, I was down below, I became aware that some extreme roughness was uh, taking place, and then, of course, the boat turned on its side, something conventionally called a B2 knockdown, where the mast goes down below the water level, It's not a full capsize where it goes to 180 degrees, but beyond 90 anyway. So that was when I became aware that uh, things were not going according to plan. So at the start of that, it sounds like a pretty rough ride, but towards the end, it's starting to get very serious. So the mast has started to go below the water level. What's happening at this point? What's happening inside the boat, Penny? So everything is just falling around. It's like being in a washing machine. You are falling Everything in the cabin and the cockpit is moving around. If you're not tied on, you're going to be flung everywhere. So it's just total chaos and very, very scary. Very scary and I imagine very dangerous. But is this still sort of within the normal realm of things happening or is this getting beyond a normal racing condition or what you expect people to be racing in? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so maybe they're starting to fear now and starting to consider sort of safety procedures, what they might be doing in order to get themselves out of trouble at this point. Yes, absolutely. What they're going to do with the sails, where are they going to steer, how they're going to ensure that nobody gets injured, etc, etc. Frank's talking about that it wasn't a full capsize. No. So you can come back from that, I presume. Yachts nowadays are designed with much more finesse, say, than back in 1979. But he obviously came back up to upright again. Yes, he did. And, and it will depend on the type of yacht. So some yachts were much better at coming back up from a capsize than others. So it sounds like this one was pretty seaworthy and so obviously came back upright, but others weren't so lucky. And the other thing I'm interested in, is it the combination of those really rough waves and strong gusts of wind rather than the persistence of mean speeds of the wind? What makes a yacht capsize? Is it just the violence of the wind going in every direction? Obviously, the the wind direction was changing because they were very close to the low. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Claire. I think it's very complex. So you have to understand that, yeah, changing wind direction, changing wind speed confused high seas what direction were they aiming in you know were they going into the waves were the waves hitting them sideways on what sails did they have did they have too much sail up so it was very very unstable or there's lots of different factors that you have to consider you know were all the crew safe were any of them injured did you have inexperienced people helming the boat and meanwhile rick on the marionette was having his fair share of issues as well we were heading to the Fastnet Rock. I'm only going to hazard a guess, 20 or 30 miles from it. The wind came through very, very quickly, and the waves got rough very, very quickly. By the time we had taken the spinnaker down and we wanted to put up a storm jib, we were also trying to reef the main because the wind was getting so strong so quickly. And unfortunately, a massive gust came through and sent the main halyard spinning out of somebody's hand and around the forestay, which meant 
if you've got a wire around the forestay that doesn't belong there, you can't put up a storm jib. And if the main halyard has been lost to the forestay, you can't put up a main. So we were blowing under bare poles then into Ireland. Not a good place to be. So that sounds terrifying. We're into day three. The wind has been increasing. The sea state's been getting worse and worse. Uh, Meanwhile, back in the Met Office HQ, earlier that day, the senior forecaster was faced with this dearth of actual observations. And I read in the report that there were some observations that may well have been wrong as well. It looked like some of the observations were coming in and had been recorded in whole millibars rather than uh, in fractions of millibars. And so the winds and the uh, surface observations that were coming in weren't matching up with the synoptic charts. And this is going to produce a significant amount of uncertainty for any forecast or for any forecast, isn't it? I think you're absolutely right, Doug. Back in the day, when you didn't have those observations, I remember going into the Weather Centre at London when I started in 93. And the first thing we did was draw up a massive chart which went from across the Atlantic to Europe and you would join the dots with any observations you had and that would really add value to all those kinks in the isobar where you knew the wind would pick up further, we'd be quite gusty, you could see some development, maybe some showers and it's all this stuff, all this information is crucial. That density of information it sounds like if you've got a situation where a very small region actually is particularly stormy, is particularly high winds, then not having an observation anywhere near that is going to produce a lot of uncertainty in the forecast. Particularly if you've got a shallow low. So if you're joining the dots either side of it, you could actually just draw lines and draw right through it. And this low pressure system was quite small at the time. It was very intense. But actually, if you didn't have any information around ground data around that zone there, then you could see it is a lot more shallow. And maybe that's what the models saw. Okay, and and the, the models at this point are quite coarse grid. As we say, they haven't got as many levels in. They've got a larger grid cell, if you like. And so you might not produce some of the, the physics within that situation that would tell you that there was going to be such extreme winds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also the other important point is that this underwent explosive cyclogenesis. I was having a look at another article and, um, you know, this dropped the central pressure of this low dropped 24 millibars in nine hours. Now, to have the definition of explosive cyclogenesis or a weather bomb, it just has to drop 24 millibars in 24 hours. Wow, okay. But this This did it in nine hours. So this is... This is so quick. This is so rapid that we are talking about some exceptional storm here. I mean, I just, you know, looking back to what Rick was saying, by this stage, I think the forecast was pretty much irrelevant because they were now looking at survival, weren't they? Once the sea state is at 40 feet, that's not going to ease in the next 10 hours, is it? You do get a lag time with rough seas after winds have picked up that much the swell from a deep low coming in as well that actually adds to the wave height etc and my understanding is that it was the size of the sea uh, was the real problem for a lot of the mariners rather than the actual winds themselves it was the sea state that was the problem i think it was uh, it was both to be honest because what you have is you've got this low obviously deepening like mad as it comes towards southern ireland it's lowest um, central pressure when it's over southern ireland as it's coming in, the winds ahead of it are coming in from the south or the south-southeast. As it then tracks up across southern Ireland up into towards the Irish Sea, the winds swing round to the southwest and west and then eventually northwest. So you have that huge change in wind direction. And so you've got waves originally coming from the south 
And then as the winds change and you get this streak of stronger winds coming in from the west, you then suddenly get these very tall, high waves coming in from the west, hitting the waves that have already formed in the southerly winds. So hence you're getting the very, very confused seas. It's the clashing. And it's just yes. sort of pushes. The momentum yes. must be immense. Yes. And that's where you get the wave heights, which are so... It's like freak waves, which we occasionally absolutely. see along the absolutely. coast. But this is, you know, out to sea. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, you know, we've got uh, recorded measurements of waves over 45 feet high. Wow, in the Celtic okay, so Sea. So, so we know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. We know that what large. these yachtsmen are telling us yeah. has actually been verified I, I read by that. records. Okay, and then we've seen the records as well later on. Maybe that was that that information will have been gathered later on. I'm guessing. And I wonder because it was explosive cyclogenesis whether there was a sting jet involved as well because we did have this swathe of very strong winds, not particularly wide. The swathe. So, uh, Claire, you spoke to the, the yachtsman about uh, when they realised it wasn't a race anymore and, and it was about survival and about the rescue. Can you talk more about that? Yes, for Frank, it was when his yacht absolutely just capsized and people were in the water. I mean, I can't imagine how scary that must have been. He, uh, You'll notice in the narrative, he talks about not a pleasant situation. He's a hardy yachtsman, he really is. Let's listen to what he had to say. There was a moment when, uh, I think after the second knockdown, when the helmsman, having held onto the wheel and pulled it out of the deck, was actually washed astern, and Billy and I were able to rush up and help retrieve him. He was on his lifeline, not a pleasant situation, and it was one of those occasions in life where the word man overboard was extremely electrifying. I was reading another survivor's account earlier on and he said uh, that there was nothing really they could do on the boat to control the boat these waves were coming in and it was just Russian roulette as to whether one of the really big waves would hit you and capsize you it's not like you could steer your way out of trouble it's not like you could set any sails or do anything you were just literally clinging on and hoping that the boat wouldn't capsize and then sink and this sounds like a a terrible situation to be in some people left the boats and got into uh, their life rafts for fear of the boat sinking and they had to be in the life rafts but even being in the life rafts sounds like a, a, a terrible situation a lot of these were open life rafts so you would be exposed to the weather you would be spun round you would still be in the worst of the wind and the waves even though you are now on something that you're pretty certain it's not going to sink you're still in in danger of hypothermia and drowning so this is a really serious situation and there's now a huge rescue effort taking place uh, helicopters and boats and coast guard from several nations I think the only saving grace is that the fast net race is quite close to land relatively. It's not like you're sailing across the Atlantic. And I think possibly if the race had been far more in open waters, more people wouldn't have made it back. So you're in helicopter range here. So it sounds like the helicopter crews at Cold Rose and elsewhere had a huge number of missions to fly to get people back. And a lot of people were lifted from the water. In fact, Frank was. Frank was lifted. And I think the most scary part of that, you had to jump into the water first before being airlifted. This is what he had to say. At some point, we heard the noise of a helicopter. And in looking out of the companionway, having pulled the hatchback, we could see not one helicopter, but two. The Royal Navy had brought in one of their new Sea Kings, an old Wessex. And clearly, we were right out in the middle of the Irish Sea, 50, 60 miles out. So quite close to the endurance of the Wessex helicopter, 
the helicopter pilot was indicating that this was a good moment to go. We had no radio contact. In those days, we had to jump over the back of the boat one at a time, so the boat was proceeding in a northwesterly direction at about 10 knots, I suppose, with just the jib up. And uh, we had to step over all of the ropes and all the detritus of the boat that had been on deck and was trailing aft, and we had to jump into the sea, and then the helicopter would come in with the driver of the helicopter. Of course, he'd have to drop 20 or 30 feet to keep the stop in the water, and as the next wave came in, he'd have to come up 20 or 30 feet. A fantastic piece of flying, as I thought at the time. Interestingly, when I spoke to Rick about this, one thing he picked up on was that he didn't really know what happened to anyone else, any of the other sailors, yachtsmen in other yachts. And I think that was probably his first concern was getting onto terra firma. And then you think, what has happened to other people? It became apparent that this was a big disaster. I think uh, it un- absolutely. I think it unfolded from oh, thank goodness and that elation that you, your whole crew, have survived to, oh. In fact, Rick talks about that in in his uh, final piece, and you know it's something that does stay with you. And I understand why these guys remember every aspect of it because it's ingrained in your memory. The reality of what had happened to us and the experience we've been through, but much more to the point, the experience others had been through came home as we were being towed in and the navigator was getting information in. We got into Baltimore about nine o'clock at night on the Tuesday. The Baltimore lifeboat had been out since the day before and all of the village turned out to greet their heroes back and they were bloody heroes. We got out some whiskey and started sharing the whiskey around with everybody and they were really, really friendly, but they were beginning to tell us the stories of all the things that had gone wrong. And that's when we knew that it was a bloody serious situation, the full extent of how serious it was. So Rick and his crew sent a distress call to the Irish lifeboat and were rescued. Others weren't so lucky, of course. Out of the 303 yachts that took part, only 85 made it back under their own sail and 19 people were tragically killed. But we did learn some lessons. The entire forecasting community, the yachting community, uh, and the rescuers learned a, a huge amount, and things have really changed since. Yeah, I mean, if you look at weather forecasting, you know, what's changed? We've got a better supercomputer, obviously, and we've got improved weather models, which means that we have much better weather forecasts, much more accurate going further days ahead. We've got more extensive observations. So there's a massive number yeah. of satellite observations yeah. that are and coming from in. and radar as well. We're yeah. not just relying on ships and, and land stations. And obviously we now quality control all that uh, weather observation data much more tightly now. It did. There was one point I noticed that the, um, that the computer which was running the models actually went down during the forecasting period before the storm, I noticed in this. And that, that's unthinkable now, right? Or it's pretty much unthinkable. In fact, I think we're backed up, aren't we, with, we by have, the Americans? We've got much better resilience in okay, terms so of running our computer weather models and forecasts. So absolutely, yeah, the resilience is there. We've still got the forecaster machine mix. It's still very important. Yes, that's interesting. So it's not just the machine that's producing. You're allowing a forecaster to use their subjective knowledge to enhance the forecast. We've still got forecaster machine mix when it comes to weather forecasting. That's really important. And also what's grown out of that is how important it is to forecast 
what the potential impacts are going to be from severe weather. You know, that's an area that's really grown over the last couple of decades. You know, the Met Office are at the forefront of doing that. So, yeah, there's been lots of improvements around forecasting accuracy, how far ahead we can forecast. You know, the weather data that we use for forecast is obviously improved hugely as well through the use of radar and satellite and we've got some uh, some better communication right so I, I, I assume we can get our information to people on the yachts and they can receive it much yes. better than, than, yes. than they could in 1979 yeah because you know the IT and the electronic equipment has moved on in leaps and bounds since then and now you know all the yachts are able to have all that receiving equipment to get all the weather forecasts and all the other information regarding weather forecasting, routing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the routing, I guess they can yeah. they can even optimize their sailing yeah. depending on weather forecast. Yeah. So Penny, I understand that the fastnet race has changed significantly since the disaster in 1979. Absolutely right. So we've seen how satellites have improved weather forecasting, but it's also given the ability to sailors to receive up to date weather information on board, and so they have a better chance of seeing a storm coming and thus avoiding it. So that's a real plus point. The other thing is that sailors now have got to be at a certain standard to right. go on the fast net. So they've got to have done a fair amount of training and completed a sea survival course as well. And also all the clothing that they wear has got to be of a certain standard to withstand you know, the potential of um, storm conditions as well. And also what we've seen is that the Royal Ocean Racing Club has tightened up its safety requirements for boats. And the start of the 2007 Fastnet was delayed by 25 hours because of a strong wind forecast. So we are seeing the weather forecast taken into consideration, which is fantastic news. And I think also one of the more important points is that it's been change in yacht design rules, which aim to make today's vessels much more seaworthy and less likely to capsize as they did and as we saw in the 1979 race. So safety is our primary concern here, really. And the final paragraph of the report of the Fastnet 1979 race stated slightly tersely, the sea showed that it can be a deadly enemy and that those who go to sea for pleasure must do so in full knowledge that they may encounter dangers of the highest order. And we've heard about those dangers today. That's the Fastnet 1979 race. Many thanks to Penny Tranter. Mostly Weather is a UK Met Office production produced by Claire Nazir and Adrian Holloway. (laughs) 